Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. All right, so um, this will be number four of Going Beyond Jesus. Uh, if you haven't watched or listened to the others, then um, you, know, you might want to do so. It'll give you some other context. Obviously, because we've got you know, three one-hour sessions, I, uh, I'm not going to go over um, what it is that we dealt with specifically in those, but obviously really important stuff. Um, making the case about um, going beyond Jesus and how the Christ was the Christ before Jesus was ever Jesus. And Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus was the Christ, but the Christ is not just Jesus. The Christ is more than Jesus. And, uh, and so we, we've dealt with that a little bit. So um, I wanted to follow on from that so we don't take a lot of time on, um, on revisiting, but uh, just, just a couple of things to, uh, to set this up. It, it, when, when you start to examine and, um, and look at the whole issue of who is the Christ, what is the Christ, what does that mean to us, um, it takes you down a whole avenue that takes you away from the, the basis of God is somewhere else and we are here and God's not happy and we have to somehow get him to be happy and so, you know, Jesus has to be the intermediary because, because God's anger won't be appeased unless he has somebody, you know, to, uh, to beat up on to get his anger out of him. And so what it does, it keeps us away from a more transcendent, um, um, a transcendent cosmic perspective of the presence and the essence and the function and the work of the Christ in everything. So I, um, I read something, Chris will be glad I read this. Um, I read this um, while I was preparing uh, this morning uh, and I thought it's very interesting. It's a lesson to me. I don't know whether I'm there yet, but um, I think it's a good place to start. Um, it was said by a guy called W.H. Auden, who was a, um, he's, he's a Catholic guy. But he said, life is the destiny you are bound to refuse until you've consented to die. Let me read that again. Life is the destiny you are bound to refuse until you have consented to die. So in our search for life, the truth is that destiny that we so long for, which is the fullness of life, Basically, you're saying until you consent to die, you will never find that destiny. And I think the, the whole issue of the Christ and discovering the Christ is part of that journey. Now, also on the back of that, I was in the garden the other day and um, taking advantage of the fine weather a bit so I could read outside. And um, I had a song going around in my head, which, you know, do you have those ridiculous moments? And what popped into my head was even more ridiculous because going round in my head is all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things bright and beautiful, the Lord God made them all, you know, a little flower in springtime, etc., etc. This is going on in my head, right? This is unsolicited. And um, my 
exercise this last week and a half has been reading Ephesians and Colossians in the message, because Ephesians, certainly the first half of Ephesians, and two-thirds of Colossians are the, the main go-to scriptures and, and references of Paul talking about the Christ. So I wanted to read them in the message. I've read them in several other uh, Bibles, New American Standard, New King James, NIV, and I wanted to get a, a concept, a perspective on it. And I would advise you, if you've got the Message Bible, if you haven't, just download it on your phone or whatever, and read um, Ephesians and Colossians. You can leave out a bit about husbands and wives and children and slaves and all that. That's not relevant to this conversation. But the other stuff, uh, I would highly recommend you give it a read in the message. So having had this song go around in my head, you know, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, um, I sit down to read, and this is what I read, Colossians 1.12 in the message, thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. Um, it was probably the first time in my life that I've had any respect for that song. You might say, well, that's terrible, you know, but um, from where I came from, from, from my roots, from my background, from what was, quote, important, let's do, we're just getting some, oh, from what's important, uh, that was kind of, you know, that was, that was you know, mellow, ang Anglican childish nonsense, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, pushing the cross and Jesus and victory over the devil and... Um, but I found in that moment uh, having a new respect for it because when you begin to understand the Christ in us, then you come to a place where it's not just about escaping hell, it's not just about the battle against sin and the wickedness of the world, it actually changes to become all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. So suddenly you have a perspective of where, you know, God in all things, the trees, the nature, the birds, the, you know, the, 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 the what's that? Yeah, the purple-headed mountain, the little bird that sings, and even, even the crow that doesn't sing too well. What the Christ, what an understanding of the Christ does is it broadens you to be able to understand that all of God's creation is important. And that within all of God's creation, of course, our connection with that with humanity means that people are important. People matter. As we've talked about the sacred, they're precious. So that's where, that's where you know, I, uh, I kind of linked into this as I was reading. So, you know, I said to Chris, we've got the song for, for um, Sunday. All things bright and beautiful. We do, yeah, we'll either wrap it or do the rock version. So, I want to read you another verse from the message. Ephesians 1 verse 11. Now, we haven't got all the stuff to go on the screen because we're in here, but, but uh, let, this, let this set your heart in the right direction. It's Christ, it's, sorry, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs for us for glorious living. Um, the, the founder of the Franciscans, a guy called John Dun Scotus, he put it this way, our predestination to glory is prior by nature to any notion of sin. 
So he's writing in the 1400s. So it's, but what he's really saying is that, that our predestination for the glory to be in us is prior to or precedes any notion that we ever had of sin. So, so how did we get so sin-obsessed? It's because we were never really introduced to, to the Christ. We were only ever given the concept of Jesus because the only thing that we thought was mattered was that we were sinners and we needed saving from our sins. And Jesus means he who saves, but the Christ is much bigger. So it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. That's, that's where the secret lies. Long before we heard, first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs for us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. Now again, there's the breadth I've been trying to teach you if we've looked at the Christ. It's about everything and everyone, not just tribal and to some. So the I've said this before, but I think it's a good place to bounce into what I want to say tonight. There's always been a seeking to constrain, restrain, hijack, and tribalize the revelation of the one who transcends all things. And Christianity has been no different. So we've made the same mistake in Christianity that, that has been the mistake of all religions, if mistake is the right word. Trend might be a better word. Um, conclusion might be another word that we could use in that we have taken what we thought we have understood and we have tribalized it and in that we have constrained it, restrained it, restricted it, hijacked it and shaped it so that we have our thing. This is our thing. This is, this is in and this is how you get in and of course the problem with that is that if he the Christ transcends all things but that's what we do we tribalize it something is wrong something something is out of order and I have to say from mine and, and many of yours evangelical traditions where I have great appreciation for my background and what I was taught and what I understood I, I see some failings in that that it was very tribalistic we, we had one way of viewing Jesus, we had one way of viewing salvation, we had one way that you received salvation, we had one way to get to heaven, and by every calculation I could ever make, the consequence of that was that the great majority of humanity who ever walked the face of the planet would finish up in conscious eternal torment, while the chosen frozen... You know, we, we, used, we used to be taught rapture, the chosen frozen will all be lifted up in the air and planes will crash and, you know, buses will kill people as they go off the cliff and all that stuff uh, as we were taught that. But for me, if we were then taught that the work of Christ was victorious and that he finished what he came to do, but the great majority of humanity would finish up in this place called hell for conscious eternal torment, that doesn't sound like much of a win. It doesn't sound like much of a finish to me. And as I, I said to you before, if that is the case, he, here's, the, here's the flaw in that argument. If that's the case, then what Adam did in his fall or his failure was far greater than what Christ did in his victory. So Adam's, Adam's fall was stronger than Christ's sacrifice. Now you have to think... Does that make sense even? Does that even, if we're going to say that God is great and he's not willing that any should perish, does that make sense? Is the divine incapable 
of coming up with the way that he can redeem those who he has said that he loves, or are we saying that he is limited in his ability, and therefore he's limited in his power, and he's limited in his contact, but those are all things that our evangelicalism said he's not limited in his power, he's not limited in his presence. You know, he is in control, he is the great ruler of all things, he is sovereign, but... You know, as I've said to you before, we would have to then say, in all honesty, he's doing a terrible job. The truth is, he isn't doing a terrible job, because when you understand the Christ, and, and the Christ in all things, then you realize that maybe this thing is actually going somewhere, maybe it's heading somewhere, and maybe it's just that when we find the Christ, we find who we truly are and what we're living for, and that to realize that was in existence before we found it, but the... The, the, as we talked about on, on um, Sunday, the, what were we talking about Sunday? The word, I'm losing the word. The enlightenment shows us what has already, already been. So, so we've unduly, I said out of that, focused people on Jesus and not on Christ. Now, I don't say that as a criticism because I've done the same. I say that as a sadness that we have not had the push to say, you know, is Jesus and Christ the same thing? And is that all that Christ is? Because if, as we said, and Paul records in 1 Corinthians 10, that when they drank from the rock in the desert, that rock was Christ, then Christ was around before Jesus ever was born. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so Christ definitely precedes, and we, we gave other illustrations for that. Now, I also wrote this this week, so I think it's worth, for some of you, will get this. Um, Paul, Paul, particularly in Ephesians and Colossians, talks a lot about Christ. It really is, really is eye-opening when you start to realize Christ has a role distinct from Jesus, but connected to Jesus. You start to see stuff that you didn't necessarily see. So I wrote this as well. When Paul talks about Christ to the Gentiles, which are non-Jews, which he predominantly is doing because Paul's predominantly writing to non-Jews. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He does not mean Messiah. Now the problem is, again, I, I, I've been in ministry a long time and I've done a lot of study and I... I have a great dislike for what's called commentaries. Mostly because what commentaries do, the really difficult verses they skip over. It's like, you know, I've looked throughout my life at difficult verses, wanted a commentary to tell me some wisdom, and of course they skip over it because they haven't got a clue. But what they tend to do is they just follow the party line, telling you in other words what you could have already read in the Bible anyway, but they're just telling it some other words. And, and it becomes very religiousized. So, for example, when we've talked about the ecclesia being a Greek idea that was a, a group of ordinary people who were called together to be in one place to make um, judicial decisions, and that when Christ said, I'll build my church, he used the word ecclesia, not temple, not synagogue, because he was not trying to build anything religious. So he drew on a non-religious Greek idea to say... This looks more like what the church should be than any of those religious models. Ordinary people coming together for a purpose in one place, making decisions that change the world. But um, 
Yeah, so, so the other thing is Messiah. So when you read a commentary, it'll say Messiah means Christ. Uh, um, Christ means Messiah. Um, which, it, yes, it kind of does because it means anointed and a Messiah is someone who rises up to save their people and Jesus rose up to save his people and he was anointed. So to that degree, he was Messiah. The problem is he was a Jewish Messiah. And here's the, here's the issue that I wrote. We, Gentiles, who Paul was predominantly writing to, neither need nor were looking for a Messiah. We didn't need a Messiah to free us from the Romans or free us from our oppression because we were the, we were the slaves and they were the masters. Christ in Paul's teaching is both in and beyond Jesus. That name simply means he who saves. Christ, in summarizing Paul, is the raw material in which, by which, and by whom all things exist and have their being. Nothing, that's no thing, exists outside of him. He is all and is in all. This is the greatest discovery a person will ever make. A Christ-soaked person in a Christ-soaked world being brought to remembrance of who we truly are. That's Paul's point in Colossians, not promoting, oh, by the way, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews and you all need to follow the Messiah. That was never his point and is not his point, and that's why the Christ is important. So these are, these are background things. Now, according to Paul, then, who, who's, the most, who's uh, written most predominantly in the New Testament about Christ, The great mystery revealed to humanity is not the virgin birth, or the resurrection, or even creation. He says the great mystery of all time that we have been looking for, that's been there that we needed to see, is the mystery of Christ in you. Not just Christ even. The mystery is not Christ even. The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. This is how he puts it in Colossians 1.25. I have become its servant by the commission of God, gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And I'm going to cut bits out of these two verses, 26 and 27 here. The mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Now I want you to catch this. That's why I'm hanging here for a minute. The mystery is not even that, oh, Jesus was the Christ or the Christ has existed for all time, the mystery that we were trying to get a hold of is the mystery of Christ in you. That's what we struggle with because all cultures across all times can conceive of a God or a divine and expressions of that that is external and out there and somewhere and something. But none of them have the real concept of Christ in you the hope of glory. So the great mystery of the journey of Scripture is not just for you to realize, oh, Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Savior, or even that Jesus was the Christ. The mystery that we're trying to grasp is Christ in you. This is more than just salvation. Because salvation is simply saved from something. Oh, we're saved from our, are we saved from our sins? Yes, we're saved from our sins. That's true, and it's wonderful, but that's not the great mystery. Because all that is is saved from something, and, and it does not carry the, the, the depth, the breadth, the height, the wonder 
of the divine being fully present in you and you being fully present in the divine to the extent that both become one. Christ in you means that Christ is part of you and you are part of Christ. That's the great mystery. That's what we're driving at in going beyond Jesus. So I would argue from our genealogy of Matthew 1 and the children of Israel's journey from Numbers 33 and those 41 steps that bring you to Jesus, to the banks of the Jordan, not into the revelation of who you truly are, are the whole point of the gospel is getting us into Christ, not just to Jesus, but through Jesus into Christ so that you realize you're not just as we were taught basically saved to go to heaven but you were you were brought to this revelation so you could come to the understanding of Christ in you the hope of glory and what we said at the beginning it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for okay so taking this on a little further so um So Paul, Paul says the great mystery revealed to humanity, not the virgin birth, not the resurrection, not creation, but the mystery being Christ in you. The term that we could and should use to correctly define that Christ in you would be the word incarnation. Now, the word incarnation, of course, you know, carne, if you know any French, carne is the French word for meat. It all comes from Latin. So incarnation is, is in flesh, right? In flesh. So, so the great word to use here of, of Christ in you would, would very, very accurately be an incarnation, that we participate in an incarnation, right? God in the flesh. Now, of course, that opens up all kinds of thoughts and conversations and I'm going to break that down a little bit, but before I get to that point, I want to give you some of the background of what Paul's heart is that takes us to this. So I'm going to read quite a bunch of verses taken from Colossians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 3 in the message. Um, I've, I've chopped out some verses, so it's not too you know weighty with the little bits in between, but just listen to this. I, I, think, I think this is worth reading in the context of a scripture reading. I want you woven into a tapestry of love, in touch with everything there is to know of God. Then you will have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ, God's great mystery. All the richest treasures of wisdom and knowledge are embedded in that mystery and nowhere else. I like that. And we've been shown the mystery. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. Watch out for people who spread their ideas through the empty traditions of human beings and empty superstitions of spirit beings. That's a great description of where most of us were raised in church. Empty traditions of human beings, but also empty superstitions of spirit beings. I have huge problems with what is commonly known as spiritual warfare. Huge problems. But that's not the way of Christ. See? Those traditions... 
those empty superstitions about spirit beings are not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in Him. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without Him. When you come to Him, that fullness comes together for you. That fullness of what? The fullness of the whole jolly universe comes together for you. Entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. You're already in. Insiders. Not through some secretive in initiation, right? But rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. So don't put up with anyone pressuring you in details of diet, worship services, or holy days. All those things are mere shadows cast before what was to come. The substance is Christ. All this other that we're doing is stuff. The substance of Christ. If, if all that we're doing does not bring you to the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, we've done our stuff really well but we've missed the substance of the whole thing, which is Christ. So then, if, Christ, if, if with Christ you've put all the pretensions and infantile religion behind you, why do you let yourselves be bullied by it? Don't touch this, don't taste that, don't go near this. Do you think things that are here today and gone tomorrow are worth that kind of attention? Such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. They even give the illusion of being pious and humble and ascetic. But they're just another way of showing off, making yourself look important. And I have to say, probably great swathes of my own, quote, spirituality. I did not intend them to be that way, but according to Paul, you know, I said them in a deep enough voice. And they were an illusion of piousness and humility, but they were just another way of showing off, making ourselves look important. You know, we're accepted by God. We're, we're in this. We, you know, we've done the stuff. So Colossians 3, don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert at what is going on around Christ, not what's going on around you. Be alert at what's going on around Christ who fills all things. Everyone is included in... Oh, where, uh, uh, that's where the action is. See things from his perspective. So we have to develop a Christ perspective of seeing ourselves, of seeing Jesus, of seeing God, of seeing the world. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ... And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. I think they're fabulous scriptures, really tremendous. 
So you might want to go and read some of the stuff that's around that. But I think you can see how Paul, Paul's got his stuff together in the context of now his understanding of the Christ and, and the importance of that and the revelation of that in our lives. And how that should then begin to shape our whole thinking on everything. So, this takes our journey on, again, and I think there's going to be lots more things still to say about the Christ, but um, when I said about Christ in you, the hope of glory, that another word for that would be incarnation. Christ in you, Christ in your flesh, because if Christ is in you and your flesh, that's an incarnation. It's as real an incarnation as Jesus in the body of Mary. If Christ is in you, he is incarnate in you. There is an incarnation. But incarnation is a scandal. So I want to talk for a few minutes in, in wrapping, you know, tying this thing around tonight about the scandal of incarnation. If we only think of the incarnation as relating to Mary and the birth of Jesus, we will see it as a remedy for something wrong rather than the continued unfolding of something right. Did you get that? I'm going to read it again. If we only think of the incarnation as relating to Mary and the birth of Jesus, we will see it as a remedy for something wrong, which is what we saw the birth of Jesus in Mary into our world, the remedy for something wrong, rather than the continued unfolding of something right. The Mary story is part of the continued unfolding of something right. It wasn't to fix anything, it was to reveal something. A revelation of what was always been, that now Jesus revealing the Christ to us would help us come to another understanding of the unfolding of something right. Now, I would prefer to call it the continued unfolding of life rather than right. Because when we use the word right, we tend to think one thing's right and one thing's wrong. But I'd like to call it, it's the continued unfolding of life rather than right. Maybe we could call that continual unfolding of God. Which again is an alien concept mostly, and particularly the evangelical traditions that we were raised in, and probably some of the other more orthodox traditions, to even conceive of the continued unfolding of God. That's the scandal of incarnation. A continued unfolding of God. Well, hang on a minute. So, so God is now showing up like this. Now, again, in the scandal of incarnation, you have to think about Jesus being incarnate. And say, so, okay, so what was God up to? In, in the traditionalist, in the traditional creationist view, the earth is only just over 6,000 years old, which is really dumb. I'm sorry, it just, it just is. Now, now, I think it can be as dumb to propose sometimes the kind of numbers of millions of years that we have no way to prove that. You know, it's, it's, a pre, you know, it's as much a kind of a bit of a guess in the dark I think it can be religious, ridiculous on both ends, both in the, the how many hundreds of billions, but also in 6,000 years, you know, of existence and literal creation in six days. And I think, you know, my issue with that would be, so if, if 4,000 years before Jesus, they are suggesting 
that the earth was made. Therefore, Adam's approximately 4,000 years before Jesus. What was God doing for 4,000 years? Was he really that incapable? If, if, if the fall was what we were told the fall was, and if that was then where sin became inerrant in every person in the way we were told it, then what was God doing for 4,000 years? Oh, he's waiting for the right time. If I, if I, even now in my journey, if Riley messes up, I'm not going to wait 40 years to find the right time to intervene in a process that will bring help to Riley. I'm going to do it right now. So again, there is, a, there is a severe problem that says somehow, oh, well, you know, God was working through this and he was showing himself through that. And all of that is true. But if we believe that the only pinnacle of that was the birth of Jesus, then why would God stumble around for 4,000 years until he thought, ah, this is what I'll do now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, this is, this is asking you to think a little bit. The other alternative is that Jesus incarnate was part of the unfolding story of God. A continual unfolding story where God is walking with us and Jesus is important and Jesus has a role and it's very important what's accomplished through Jesus. But it wasn't that for 4,000 years we didn't really have anything. God was trying a bunch of stuff that wasn't really any good. You know, and then he come up with the master idea. But then, of course, he had that idea in the beginning, before the foundation of the earth, but decided not to do it for 4,000 years and leave all those people without... Do you understand what I'm saying? So we have to say no. The truth is, the incarnate Christ had been showing up since the very beginning. He even showed up when Cain killed Abel. So we've got to work some stuff out here, but here's the deal. Anybody goes after Cain for killing Abel, they're going to have to answer to me. Because I'm not putting a mark of shame upon him. I'm putting a mark of grace. What happened with Cain is my business with him. So there was, there was, Cain knew that, and God said that. Therefore, there was an incarnate, in-flesh expression, manifestation showing up. And in the same way, you know, when we see um, whoever it was that turns up to Abraham in his tent, Sodom and Gomorrah. What about the story of Melchizedek, who had no beginning and no end, and turns up and talks to Abraham, we don't know where he came from, we don't know where he's gone. What about, what about the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Was that an apparition, or was it an incarnation? If it was an incarnation, we have an unfolding story of God, of which Jesus is part. Do you understand what I'm saying? Very important part. Part of the process, but this incarnation process with humanity has been going on. Even in the context of they drank from the rock, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, when they journeyed across the desert and they had no water, and God told Moses, strike the rock, which was symbolic of Christ being smitten for us, and out of him came blood and water, out of the rock comes water, and they drank, and Paul says, and they drank from the rock, and that rock was Christ. Not it was a picture of Christ. You know, that rock was a metaphor for Christ. Paul actually says that rock actually was Christ. An incarnation, but this time not in the form of flesh, but in the form of rock, in the form of the earth, in the form of other aspects of creation. 
So do, do, do you understand what I'm saying here? So, so if, if the incarnation is a continued unfolding of life, then I think we could quite safely call that the continual unfolding of God. So, so what happens when Christ is in you, the hope of glory? It's a continued unfolding that Paul's whole point of Colossians is says, stop looking down, start looking up at what Christ is seeing and realize this will flow out of you when you give it the space to be what it's meant to be. So one could argue that the first incarnation was not the birth of Jesus, but the birth of the universe. Was Jesus the Word made flesh? Was the universe the Word made flesh? Remember, John wrote this, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh in the form of Jesus. Jesus is not just the Word. Jesus was a manifestation of the physical expression of the Word, but you could argue the Word was actually more than Jesus, but Jesus was the Word, but the Word was also more, just as we've talked about Christ. And how did creation come about in our narrative? And God said, let there be. What is it when you say something? It's the Word. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Uh, and without him, nothing was made. He was in the beginning with God. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. But in this context of John, now the word became flesh in the form of Jesus and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth, in the form of, of, of Jesus. So, so would it be fair then to argue that actually the first incarnation was not when... when the embryo of Jesus was planted into the womb of Mary, who, who said yes. And might I say that I believe all incarnations begin with the yes, and that's why so often we have a, we have a compromised incarnation expression because of the lack of the yes. Right? So Mary's, Mary is metaphorically and symbolically showing us the process of how one becomes the beneficiary of incarnation, right? That which is born of you will be born of the Spirit. And she said, let it be to me as you have said. Paul alludes to this in, 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 in Colossians about our agreement with what is already there so that it can become in us its full reality, a full manifestation of incarnation. I've preached in many places and some of people look at you like, you know, what kind of heretical nonsense is this? Because I asked the question, and really it boils down to that 4,000-year thing. Do you honestly believe that Mary was the first and only young Jewish virgin girl that had ever been at an encounter with God by the Spirit, through an angel or whatever, with the request that she would become a source of a manifest incarnation. I would find that difficult. I think Mary's the one recorded because Mary's the one who said yes. 
I mean, even Jesus said to his disciples, go to all the houses and say, peace be to you. And if they won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next house and say, peace be with you. Until you find somewhere where peace will rest, where you rest. So it's just, again, I'm trying to stretch your thinking. Mary might not have been the first and only. Maybe the key to the full, the full presence of incarnation released and manifested through us, growing within us, is our yes. It's our, let it be to me, as you have said. It's our lack of fear that says, yes, I'm willing. This is not by any work or effort of mine. I can't do anything to make this happen. All I can do is say, okay then. That's the key to the incarnation of the Christ. So, what I was saying is that, that we could argue that the first incarnation was not the birth of Jesus, but was actually the birth of the universe. The word, and boom. One could say it's the wonder of the divine. Physic when the, one could say it's when the wonder of the divine physically occupies space in the form of matter. Let me say that again. One could say that incarnation is when the wonder of the divine physically occupies space in the form of matter. We talk about the whole thing entering with a bang. And I think incarnation still comes with a bang. Right? I think the realization of it still comes with a bang in your own spirit, in your own heart, in your own world. It comes with a bang. You know, I'm not a big proponent of all the scientific issues of, of the Big Bang, I have some questions about that. But I like the idea that incarnation begins with a bang. And suddenly into space, into nothingness, what you have is divine physically occupying that. So the world and everything we see, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the solar systems, they are really an expression of this. They are the divine physically occupying space in the form of matter. It functions, it exists, it has its being always still in the Christ because it's the divine functioning in the form of matter and that's what incarnation is. Therefore, when we allow the reality of incarnation its fullest expression, we're actually talking about Christ because we said Christ always was and Christ is, and Christ always will be. He was the one who existed, and, and it's through him and by him that all things exist and hold together. So when we allow the reality of incarnation, its fullest expression, we are talking about Christ, and if we're talking about Christ, we have to understand and accept the issue of incarnation. So remember this, Colossians 1, we read this, verse 16. This, this is from the NIV. For by him all things were created, this is the Christ, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, black holes, subatomic particles, the things you can't see, the things you can see, you know, um, dark space, as well as the light, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, and for him, and he is not a bozo. So we've got to get a different view on our world. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So anything that is a thing, which is everything 
in the whole of the universe, he's before all that. See, what I'm trying to get through to you, don't separate Christ from Jesus, but allow Christ to be more than Jesus, because the Christ was before anything that ever was, and in him all things hold together. So right now, the whole thing holds together in him and because of him. And when our lives touch that space, we start to have a, a different view of which, of which physical death is merely an inconvenience. So, why did I refer to this as the scandal of incarnation? Because most of the church cannot think of it, incarnation, outside of the penal substitutionary model of understanding Jesus and his death. One of the great deficiencies of the penal substitutionary atonement model, you're all familiar with that after our teaching, it's the one that, you know, we have a debt of sin, that debt of sin had to be paid, God was angry at our sin, the only way it could be paid was by a death. That death was the death of his son. And so then our sins were atoned for. And so just like a transactional legal agreement, there's no love or kindness in it. It's a legal transaction, right? You're guilty. Somebody got to pay. Jesus paid. Okay, now Jesus has paid. I'll let you off. There's no forgiveness involved in that. Now, I know we could make a case to say, oh, God, this is how God showed his love. Well, there's better ways of showing how God showed his love than trying to put it into a penal substitutionary atonement model. So, one of the great deficiencies of the penal substitutionary atonement model is that it leads us only to thank Jesus and not think Jesus. So we've grown up in a church that all we're obsessed with is thank Jesus that he died for you. Thank Jesus that he paid the price of your sins. Thank Jesus that now you're going to heaven. But the whole idea was that we should think Jesus. That's the Christ in you. We should think Jesus, not thank Jesus. So, so it's fine to thank Jesus, and it's right to thank Jesus, and it's wonderful. But there's something bigger than that. When you think Jesus, you move away from the idea that we were so lucky to get in that we better give somebody thanks. And you come into the whole idea of thinking forgiveness like God thinks forgiveness. Not like we were taught it under penal substitutionary atonement. You're guilty, you're going to die for all it but God will send you, you'll get saved by the skin of your teeth, but you will just get in. When we go beyond that, we think Jesus. Our minds, our hearts, our spirits start to think a different way about ourselves. You know, so one of the things that changed in me is I was raised God loves me in spite of who I am. Well, that's not really love. You might say, oh, it isn't that a lovely form of love. No, that's a, that's a tolerant form of love. And, and I've said my illustration to that is if when I proposed to Chris or she proposed to me, whichever way it was, one of us did, obviously, it was probably Chris to me, would have been, you know, will you marry me? Why do you want me to marry you? Because I love you. In what way do you love me? I love you in spite of all that you are. So you wouldn't marry anybody who said that. You just wouldn't. Because in one hand they're saying they love you, and in the other, other hand they're pointing out that you're deficient. And you should be jolly thankful, jolly grateful that I'm even considering giving a thought to marrying you and taking you off the shelf and tolerating you. See, God does not love us in spite of. He loves us because of. We're in his image and his likeness, and he looks at us, and what he sees is the Christ in you that was there from the beginning. He sees the image in you, and he says, oh, I like that. 
And then the processes, do you remember we told the story of Michelangelo and, and his statue of David that's in Florence? And how Michelangelo took a piece of marble that had already been rejected by several other sculptors because it was flawed. And of course, when you're doing a sculpture, the, the, if you have a flawed stone, the likelihood is that at some point when you're chipping away at that, it will crack and you'll destroy it. But Michelangelo took on a piece of flawed marble that had been rejected by others, and from it he made David, the statue of David, which is you know, one of the most famous um, statue, uh, sculptures in, in the world. And it's, it's purportedly said of, of Michelangelo, may not be true, it might be a preacher's story, but it's great anyway, so I'm saying it's true. That they asked Michelangelo, you know, how, how, considering what you were given, how did you create this beautiful thing from that piece of stone? And he is purported to have said, I just kept chipping away everything that didn't look like David. And in essence, that's how you would make an image from a piece of stone that you were sculpting, even if the stone was flawed. You keep chipping away everything that doesn't look like what it is that you've seen in your heart, in your mind. So, so in essence, yes, we may have flaws in us. We, we may feel that we've been rejected uh, because of the flaws that we have. But God's heart is, I just chip away everything that doesn't look like Barbara. I'm chipping away everything that doesn't look like James. So he's not seeing the flaws. He sees the Christ in you. He saw the David in that stone, and he chips away. So the process we're in when we understand the Christ is one of the honor of having the divine working with us so that what doesn't look like him gets chipped away. So there's part of the, the scandal of this because in that whole model, we were told to thank Jesus, not to think Jesus. And when you think Jesus, you think, actually, I'm okay, he likes me. Because much of the church would actually balk at the idea of the birth of the universe being the first incarnation of the Christ. That's another reason why I refer to it as the scandal of incarnation. Most of the church, if you said the first incarnation of Christ was the birth of the universe, and if it came in a, with, it certainly came with a bang, whether it came in the big bang or whatever, that's the, the church would balk there. It's the scandal, you see. Well, oh, hang on a minute. That would mean that Christ is in everything. That, that would mean that within all of creation, there is the seeds of redemption, not condemnation. And we can't have that because that would mean we'd have to totally rethink our penal substitutionary atonement theories. So it's a scandal. Mary was a scandal. You know, the, the whole metaphoric process of Mary becoming pregnant with Jesus in many ways was deliberately scandalous because, because the process of incarnation is scandalous. It's the scandal of incarnation. Well, hang on a minute. She's only supposed to be 16. Hang on a minute. She's not married. Hang on a minute. She shouldn't be having a baby, never mind having the Christ. Hang on a minute. Well, it can't be Jesus because she comes from Nazareth. She comes from the wrong place. So right from the very beginning, there's a scandal attached to incarnation. Now, it will scandalize your belief system. It will scandalize your theology. And it will scandalize people. But if you can accept it, what happens is Jesus gets born. Christ gets manifest. 
Worlds come into being if you can accept the scandal of it, okay? So, um, so that leads me on to, to this. So this is one of the other reasons I use the word scandal. In, in John chapter 6, Jesus is doing his thing, uh, which usually involves a couple of things. It involves him caring for the outcast, accepting the rejected, loving the ones who others would have said are unlovable, qualifying the unqualified, and, and upsetting the religious people. That's kind of the way this worked. Uh, tipping up the apple cart of religious belief and perceived concepts of God up to that time with the people who thought they had the, they cornered the market on, on the revelation of God. Uh, in, in their experience and through their scriptures, you know, and Jesus even said to them, you, you think that by knowing the scriptures, you, you have eternal life, but you don't. You think that Abraham is your father, but, you know, if I was going to tag your family line, what you look like, you, you look more like an adversary, a Satan, a devil, than you do faith. You look more adversarial towards the kingdom of God than in faith about the kingdom of God. You know, the devil's your father, that, that whole thing. So, so Jesus always had those two aspects going on with him. And um, there was a point where some of this thinking met, and it's interesting what happened. And this is my last little part of this, the story, was in um, John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to them about, I'm, I'm the bread of life. And then he, he, he does something that, you know, no, no sane person looking for um, full acceptance in a Jewish community would ever have done. He said, my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is life indeed. And unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. Well, of course, here's the good old religious Jews were raised by, hang on a minute, you know, our law says, and we believe our law came from God, that you must not eat meat with blood in it, and you certainly can't eat human flesh. And now you're telling us that if we don't eat your flesh and drink your blood, that we can never grasp, understand, have part in who you are. Or in other words, we, we can never connect with that kind of Christ. So here's, a, here's, here's the verses that come from that. John 6, 53 in the NIV. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Why? It's the scandal of incarnation, which I'm going to explain to you in a moment. And then he goes on in verse 66 to say, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So when it came to the crux of the incarnation of Jesus in them, eat my body, drink my blood, the equivalent now of 
Christ in you, it was a bridge too far for them. And so instead of accepting that the whole mystery of all this, the whole Bible, what it's all about is one thing, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The whole thing is only and totally about that. Everything else is subtext to the story because Paul says, look, the mystery you're looking for, the thing you've not been able to see, that you need to uncover is this was always about Christ in you. This was always about the incarnation of the divine in the depth of your flesh and you learning to manifest and release that and understand how that places you in the whole order of the divine thing and where that places you with God and how close that makes you and how connected you are, not separated. So many turn their back and no longer follow him. Why? Because eat my flesh, drink my blood. Now, of course, what, we, what we've... Jesus gave a little explanation after he said, he, he, you know, he said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. In other words, he was saying, of course I'm not saying, you know, physically all of you jump on me here in the town square and, you know, bite chunks out of me. You know, and slit my throat and get straws so you can... Obviously, he wasn't meaning that literally in that sense. It was metaphorical. And I think, well, why didn't you say to the people at the beginning, let me just say, what I'm about to say to you are spiritual words, okay? Right? It, it, it's symbolic. You know, the words that I'm going to speak to you are spirit and they're life. It's not... But he didn't do that until he was asked afterwards by his disciples. Why? Because he was deliberately going for the effect to challenge them about, would you be prepared to eat and drink me to the extent that I am totally in you, devoured by you, and therefore part of you and you part of me. See, so this all metaphorical thing that's, that's, that's going on. Now, now, I want you also to notice, because, you know, what came out of this course was the Last Supper, which is connected to Passover. And for us in Pentecostal tradition, you know, the communion in... in you know, Anglican, Holy Communion, in, um, in Catholic, most often the, the what's, Eucharist, you know, celebrate the Eucharist, also the same in High Anglican Church. It became that, and, and the interesting thing was that Jesus didn't say, think about this. He didn't say, stare at this. He didn't say, worship this, he said, eat this, okay? So the primary purpose was somehow you have to grasp the concept of eating this meat. Therefore, this meat being incarnate, right? In your flesh, in you, incarnate, me incarnate in you. So in Christ, we have revealed to us a truth and reality totally counteractive to the ancient religious ways and counterintuitive to their concept of the divine. Now, let me show you why this is important and why if you were a first-century Jew, you would have had a greater understanding of the challenge of what Jesus was saying. You see, ancient concepts of the divine in religion said that you gave the gods flesh to eat. You gave the gods blood to drink. You gave the gods 
You gave the gods, there was another one I put down there, you gave the gods crops to feed them. So it was a sacrificial system where you were giving flesh to the god. You were giving blood to the god. You were giving crops to the god. So the idea was that god eats your flesh... God drinks your blood that you brought in the form of offering, which is symbolic of you. God eats your crops. It was never you eat his meat, you drink his blood, you devour his crop, his wheat. It was always the other way around. So here in Jesus doing this, it's not just an empty statement. It's challenging every concept they had of their religious understanding. Now, even Judaism... The sacrifice was feeding the God. Why do we make the sacrifices? Because we are feeding the God. Why do we do the burnt offering of the meat? Because we are feeding the God. If we feed the God, the God will be satisfied. And when the God is satisfied, he will look favorably upon us. Why do we offer the blood? We offer the blood for the God to drink, symbolically. Because we are saying God needs... The sacrifice of flesh and God needs the spilling of blood to feed his requirements. And then we add the grain offerings. We bring the crops, that which is bread that feeds us. And we give them, we feed them to the God. So everything I have in the sacrificial system is me feeding myself through the sacrifice to the God to make the God happy. But Jesus says, no, here's the deal. God is now feeding his flesh to you. He's giving his blood to you. He's giving his crops, his provision to you. And if you don't eat his flesh, if you don't drink his blood, if you don't receive his provision, then you will never understand the incarnation of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was all about us being lost into the God in ancient religious thinking. Now Jesus is saying God becomes lost in you. I'm going to give you a fascinating statement. Just one second. Now you understand this is the foundation that should undergird any celebration of communion and Eucharist. This is another angle. God's saying, eat me, drink me. No God ever said that. All God's ever said, I'll eat you, I'll drink you, I'll take your stuff. And God says, no, you eat me, you drink me, I'll give you my stuff. So listen to this. We are not just humans having a God experience. The incarnation tells us that in some mysterious way, we are God having a human experience. Let that sink in. We are not just humans having a God experience. The Eucharist, the communion, the incarnation tell us that in some mysterious way, we are God having a human experience. That when you eat his flesh, drink his blood, and he is in you, God is now having a human experience, which is why it says he totally gets where we're at. He totally understands what it is to live. That's really what it means when we talk about God becomes one of us. You see, it's not God becomes one of us just because Jesus was born 
of a virgin and was half divine and half human. It's God becomes us because if we understand the incarnation and we eat the flesh of the Christ, we drink the blood of the Christ, we have the grain of the Christ, then we participate in this mysterious miracle that God is having a human experience in us. And if God is having a human experience in us, wouldn't you think that he would bring to the table all that he is? And I use he loosely. All that the divine is. Christ in you, the hope. Christ in you, the hope. That's where the hope is. Christ in you. And what is the hope? It's of glory. Not of a place called heaven, which we thought was glory. But the presence the unrestricted, unrestrained presence of the oneness. I hope you're catching this because I think it's amazing. So do you therefore believe the statement that we have been hammered with, you are what you eat? You are what you eat. It's a biological and physical reality that, that what we eat is hugely impactful upon who we are. And really, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in preaching this message, trying to draw people to the Christ in him, was saying, listen, guys, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. So eat me. Drink me. Devour me. Okay, nearly done. The scandal of incarnation. So another scandal of incarnation, which is where I'll finish, popped up and upset some on Sunday. And it was Chris's wonderful story about Catherine of Genoa. Married as a too young a girl, as was the thing in those days. Can't even imagine. You know, as Chris said, praying that she would be so sick because she couldn't become a nun. Her sister was a nun. Praying she'd be so sick that she'd be a terrible wife. Um, and then she has this revelation of what Chris said, and this, this is the, another, again, the scandal of incarnation. She ran through the streets saying, the deepest me is God. Not God is in me, but the deepest me is God. See, what Catherine of Genoa understood and what made her run through the streets shouting to everybody was the revelation of incarnation. And it was a scandal because the scandal of incarnation makes you jump and shout and say, the deepest me is God. The deepest me is God. Why? Because now it's not your flesh, your blood, your grain offered to the gods. It's his flesh, his blood, his grain offered to you. It's not him devouring that offering. It's you devouring his offering. And it's now not merely you experiencing God, but it's God experiencing humanity because of the fullness of that revelation in you. He gets it. So without a full and true acceptance of the complete understanding of incarnation, you will be unable to accept this truth, that my deepest me is God. Incidentally, I'll finish with this. If we accept incarnation as being the birth of something previously existent but not matter, birth is preceded by the waters breaking. And when the waters have broken, the birth is imminent and unavoidable. Maybe for some, the waters have yet to break. 
in which case we will endeavor to provide the best prenatal care possible, but we will not lie to you about the pain. All you mothers are, oh, you'll be all right. It's not that bad. How many of you know it is that bad? We won't lie to you about the pain, but of course the wonder of the birth is through the pain, beyond the pain, after all of that, is when you have incarnate in the flesh, now in the material, something that is real and existent and holdable. That's the truth of the manifestation of the Christ. So if you're birthing, if you have birthed, or if you are needing the prenatal care because your waters haven't broken yet and you're thinking, this is all making me bloated and fat. Well, that's because it's you're pregnant with it. You know, when the waters break, it won't be long before you running through the streets shouting, the deepest me is God. So I hope that's helped. That's another, that's another little addition to our journey of, uh, of trying to understand the Christ and going beyond Jesus. So I hope that's blessed you and helped you. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.